Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Dana Joya is the former poet laureate of California. An internationally recognized poet and critic, he is the author of seven collections of verse, including Interrogations at Noon, 2001, which won the American Book Award, and 99 Poems, New and Selected, 2016, which won the Poets Prize for the Best New Poetry Volume of the Year. His critical collections include Can Poetry Matter, 1992, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Award, and Studying with Miss Bishop, Memoirs from a Young Writer's Life, 2022. His poems have been set to music by numerous composers, including Morton Lauridson, Ned Roram, Laurie Laitman, and Dave Brubeck. Joya has also written four opera libretti and edited 20 literary anthologies. Joya was born in Los Angeles in 1950. He is of Italian and Mexican descent. He was the first person in his family to attend college, earning degrees from Stanford and Harvard. He worked in business for 15 years, writing at nights and weekends, before quitting in 1992 to write full-time. Joya served as chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts from 2003 to 2009, where he created major national programs such as The Big Read and Poetry Out Loud. He has been awarded 11 honorary doctorates and many honors, including the Leterre Medal from Notre Dame, the Presidential Civilian Medal, the Poets Prize, the Walt Whitman Champion of Literary Award, and the Aiken Taylor Award in Modern American Poetry. For nine years, served as the Judge Whitney Professor of Poetry and Public Culture at the University of Southern California, teaching literature and music before retiring in 2019 to return to full-time writing. Joya is married with three sons, one of them deceased. He divides his time between Los Angeles and Sonoma County, California. Dana, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. I'm glad to be here. I'm very excited to have you here. I've, I love your work. And I have so many questions, more than I could fit in this interview, but I've tried to edit it down to some key ones. So I'll, I'll try to be brief. I rarely am. No, that's okay. It's, it's a podcast, so it's a fluid, uh, fluid in terms of time. Uh, well, you had a book launch event recently at Arian Press, a publisher of handmade limited edition books. And publishing has changed dramatically since the days of books printed by letterpress and bound by hand. Poetry is published online. Books are digitally printed and self-published. How have these inevitable advancements in technology helped poetry and perhaps hurt poetry? Poetry is in a very good place right now. I think most people don't fully appreciate that. You know, they, uh, you know, they're, they're so used to hearing that poetry is in trouble, poetry is declining. Uh, English departments are declining. Certain kinds of reading are declining, but poetry is actually a very lively art right now. And I think it's because it is a basic human medium that was created before there were books. You know, what a, you know, what a poem uh, originally took was just a speaker. And that has made it very flexible in an electronic environment. Uh, when I began writing poetry, which was 50 years ago, uh, you know, as a, in, as a, in a young man of 20, uh, I conceived of poetry as uh, being a kind of an affair of books and small magazines. You know, you published a poem in a small magazine and eventually you collected them in books. And then if you got famous, somebody might invite you to give a poetry reading on a college campus. Uh, that was a bit of a restraint for me because my whole conception of poetry is as a musical art. Mm -hmm. Poetry existed before writing was invented, and poetry uh, is an art that's akin to song. In fact, in the ancient world, poetry and song were the same art. People, We know that because it's the same word uh, for, for song, poetry, prophecy, magic. So I always wanted a poem that needed to be read aloud. Now, interestingly, the culture has accommodated me because uh, I reach 
readers right now um, through publishing poems in magazines. I get a few readers there by publishing poems in books, and I get book. My books tend to go into multiple printings. You know, I don't have a big first printing, but you know, some of my books have gone into seven or eight printings. They've got a large audience there, and that's uh, just the beginning. I uh, recite poems in public. And, and I very rarely go to a college campus. I'm doing them at libraries, at state houses, at public ceremonies, uh, in cafes, in bars, and also on, you know, on campuses. But there's a huge number of venues. I now have a YouTube channel. I would not have done that. My son is a filmmaker. He says, Dad, you've got to do this. And I'm saying, oh, you know, it's not me. I don't really, you know, I, you know. As a Californian, I've always avoided Hollywood. Uh, he said, try it. And I have uh, a, a big audience. And people see my uh, YouTube, either the talks about poetry or the poems, and they write me. Uh, I'm, I'm on radio sometimes. We're on podcasts. We're on Zoom. And so the, the thing about that is that when's the last time you read a novel on Zoom? <laughs> when's the last time, true. you know, you... You know, you you know, you read a novel in you know in a public reading. I mean, you could do those things, but nobody will come. Uh, but poetry accommodates, the, uh, and it's natural to the new electronic media because they're about speech, and poetry is an art about taking speech and raising it to the level of song. So it's a good time to be a poet. I, I totally agree, and I've I had uh, as in my role as poet laureate for Dublin, California. I have multiple opportunities to participate in events where you wouldn't naturally think poetry would reside, uh, and also do poetry open mics at a local pizza place, poetry and pizza. And I had one event in particular where we had fifteen poets. One was eight years old, first time they'd ever recited in public. Another gentleman was eighty years old, and he'd written his whole life and never recited in public. And there was everything in between. And yeah. it was just like, wow, poetry is not dead. Poetry, there are lots of poets that are, have not had the, the um, opportunity to share their work publicly that exist. But there are so many more people that enjoy and create poetry than, than yeah. the, I think the media perceives. And anyone who wants to get some kind of public performance can do it because they have open mics and they have, you know, uh, you know, clubs and, and uh, all kinds of, you know, of places. So uh, the, the country is awash in poetry. In fact, it's the fastest growing art in the United States. It's growing among every age group, every race, both genders, every educational level. Mm. And, and that's from national endowment for the arts, uh, uh, very reliable statistics as part of the largest arts participation survey conducted in the world. So those are those are solid numbers. Uh, what is true, though, is that the English department is imploding. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, I, fifty years ago, I saw the beginning of this. They were cutting uh, literature off from not just ordinary people, but from bright undergraduates. You know, you'd go in there and the. The, the area of study was growing narrower and more professional. They were tr they tried to take an undergraduate and turn the undergraduate into a graduate student. But graduate school is a very different thing than undergraduate. Undergraduate, you're learning about life. You're, you're enlarging yourself. In graduate school, you're becoming a professional. So uh, as English departments you know, became more ideological, more pre-professional, narrower, the joy was out of it. And, you know, and they say, well, People are not becoming English majors because they're practical and need a job. No, they aren't. They're they're going to filmmaking and you know all this stuff that doesn't give them jobs anyway. Studio <laughs> art, you know, you know, students follow their bliss, and there's just not enough bliss for them in most English departments. Well, and I say that as somebody who loved my teachers and loved my classes. Well, I've got one more question before I talk about your book, uh, and that ties directly into the National Endowment for the Arts, which you had you chaired from 2003 to 2009. Poetry Out Loud is one of the initiatives that was launched during your time there. It's still alive and well. In fact, in my role as Dublin Poet Laureate that I mentioned before, I'm bringing that program back to our local high school next year. What role can high schools play in helping students connect with and appreciate poetry from the experience you had at the national and state level? Well, let me tie back to your previous question. 
we now have, and I don't know the exact number. I should call up Washington and find out. I would guess 5 million kids or something that have participated in this program, you know, over the, you know, the course of it, you know, cause we're having four or 500,000 a year during the early years, you know, you know, uh, so let's say we've got 6 million, uh, alumni for Poetry Out Loud. I don't think it's coincidental that we began to see the growth in the audience for poetry when we uh, brought this program nationwide. Because you've got six million students participating, but you've also got people who are listening to them, uh, their parents, their teachers, their classmates. I mean, so I often go to high schools and, and if I'm visiting a school, I'll say, well, let's, uh, coincided with your poetry out loud finals and you'll have 700 kids with 40 of them presenting so you've what we've done is we've brought poetry back into kind of teenage culture mm-hmm. and that's had tremendous impact as that cohort is aged you will see uh the people uh the, n- the number of of poetry readers from 18 to 25 from 26 to 30 has doubled in the last 10 years and it's ex- uh, contemporaneous with with the uh, the emergence of and uh, of this program so what you're doing i think has more uh impact on american poetic audience than a lot of things that you know that the poetry foundation and these um you know more sophisticated and better known uh you know uh organizations have because you're doing it at the grassroots yeah. the other thing i should point out is that you hold a civic office. We don't have a novelist laureate. We don't have a sculptural laureate. We don't have a literary critic laureate. We don't have a literary theorist laureate. But there's a kind of civic common sense that the poet has a civic role because clear, memorable, and evocative speech has a function in public life. Yeah, and I actually, as Poet Laureate, and my, my second uh, term just got confirmed, I'm finding opportunities because poetry is also something that, that can be done with very little time. So there was a volunteer recognition event recently, and I, I suggested, you know what, I've got an idea for a poem uh, built on something my dad taught me that I think would be perfect for this venue, and all I need is two minutes. And then that led off the event and was well-received, and uh, yes, it's very easy to logistically insert poetry into just about anything. Well, there's, you know, uh, five or six years ago, I got an invitation that kind of puzzled me, but I, you know, it was to speak at the Presidio in San Francisco on Memorial Day in the Veterans Cemetery. There's tens of thousands of veterans that are, are, you know, that are buried there. And I went there, next to me was Nancy Pelosi on one side, and then the mayor of San Francisco and people, and we had thousands of people and they were there because most of them had lost a loved one, a brother, a son, a husband in an American war, uh, or maybe their father. And it was, and they asked me to read two poems and the audience loved it. They came Mm -hmm. up to me afterwards because, you know, it's a civic wisdom that if you're having this memorial uh, of the dead, that you have great language to summon them. See, you know, poetry is a magic spell. A good poem is a magic spell. It it evokes things. It brings memories, emotions uh, from the listeners, and that's what they need. They need you know evocative words so people could, in a sense, feel closer to to, to their dead. Well, that necromancy is poetry. <laughs> well, that coincidentally ties into my first question about your book. So Meet Me at the Lighthouse employs many different forms. I'd like to focus first on The Ballad of Jesus Ortiz, a long poem with rhyme and meter and straightforward language. The poem's narrative drives steadily forward and and screams to be read out loud. It reminded me in a way of Rocky Raccoon by the Beatles. A short excerpt, 3,000 head of cattle grazing the prairie grass, 3,000 head of cattle pushed through each mountain pass. 3,000 head of cattle fording the muddy streams. And then 3,000 phantoms bellowing in your dreams. Share the fascinating origin story of this poem and why you chose the ballad form to bring this to life. My great-grandfather was a vaquero. He's a you know Mexican cowboy. And he was killed in a bar in Lost Cabin, Wyoming, when 
a guy who couldn't uh, pay his bill, uh, who, uh, who my great-grandfather was tending bar during the winter, cut him off because he couldn't pay his bill. And he was so outraged that a Mexican had told, you know, this, you know, this white guy that he, you know, that he couldn't pay a bill. The guy came back and shot him and killed him. And um, I had heard the story as a child from my grandfather, who actually was a, had been a cowboy himself when he, when he was young, but I didn't know the details. And then through circumstances too complicated to explain right now, I actually received, you know, uh, when I was chairman of the NEA, all of the documents concerning my great-grandfather, his murder, the trial of, of his murderer, uh, you know, and, and his ma ma marriage license. So suddenly it became real to me and I wanted to write a poem. And so I began write, you know, working on it, but it just didn't, it never worked out. It, every time I started it, I just gave up because uh, it felt too, it felt too artificial, too literary. Then one day, uh, some lines came to me. Jake's family were vaqueros. They worked the cattle drives down from Montana to market. Uh, and then I, then the next line just came, they did what it took to survive. And I realized it was a ballad. And I felt embarrassed about this because, you know, literary poets are not supposed to write ballads, but that's what the muse was telling me. So I began working on it. And then I understood why the muse was telling me to do that. Because if I was going to write about the death of a poor person, the death of a poor Mexican agricultural laborer, a cowboy, you know, uh, uh, that it should be accessible uh, you know, to the people that, that it happened to, it should be accessible to the poor, to to Mexican Americans, and the ballad is the way that poor people told their stories. So I realized that it was making all the sense in the world. And in fact, I have uh, read this to agricultural workers. I've read it to uh, to inner city uh, people. Whenever I have an audience that's largely Hispanic, I read it, and they love it and they respond to it because they recognize it as one of their stories. And I'm telling it in a way that they're familiar with from Mexican, you know, corridos, you know, the sort of uh, Spanish ballads from pop music, you know, from country Western music, you know, from, you know, from folk, you know, folk ballads. And so I've given it a medium that pretty much everybody who's an English speaker understands. Well, I think that you make a, key point there is you shouldn't discard a form because of it's not vogue or or for any other reason if the if the material screams out for that form and I had a poem that I worked on that actually I read at a, a Veterans Day event last year as part of my poet laureate duties and the and it was about a powerful experience I had visiting Normandy uh, years ago on a business trip and I had it in a very formal rhyme and meter and really strict and it was just not working it was it was it was hurting the story it was almost make making it trifling it somehow yeah. and then i ended up making it a prose poem in the form of a screenplay with nine scenes and then, and then it just came to life yeah. uh, it was just amazing what that difference well, it is made. the form you you choose for prose or for poetry uh determines a lot of the content but the content, you know, you get the wrong form, the content's not coming through, you know, because the form and the content are the same thing in a weird way. You know, yeah. there's just two different ways of looking at what you're trying to, to, to convey. And that's why I just, there was, I didn't know the form to put this, the ballad, what turned into the ballad of Jesus Ortiz, and, you know, but then it, when it came, I recognized it, that yeah. this is, this is how the material wanted to be presented. Because you know what a ballad does? People forget this. You know, folk ballads, they say so-and-so so murdered somebody else and this murder cut off her head and this person ran off. They never editorialize. They just show you the events. It's very cinematic. And when I have my students, you know, uh, a few times I've taught form, I've had students do it, they always want to stop and editorialize. And then I... And you, and you ask the other students, what's the, you know, they said, you know, what's the worst part of the poem? And they said, it's whether you're saying it's wrong to cut your lover's head off or, you know, this. people know that, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, the power of the ballad is it tells the story. It was the, it was the movies before movies existed. And, uh, and the, the, usually the singer of the ballad is very distanced. You know, there may, there's often like one moment where the singer will come in, you know, but it's basically, it trusts the story. And I think stories, there's some truths about existence. There are many truths about existence that we can tell only as stories. Yeah. And I think that you're choosing that form. The story was so strong 
in itself that it that the form helped the story just drive drive the poem. It's terrific. So in the underworld, a wonderful series of poems that closes the collection. You write, and this is just uh, it's a series of poems. So this is uh, number fifteen. Composure, how calm you are. With such urbane composure, you notice that the woman next to you has turned to stone. Strange, but she now seems more beautiful in her alabaster skin, so delicately weathered by the years. No sudden gorgon gaze arrested her. She drew this slow perfection from within. So this series of poems is rich with references, in this case allusions to Greek mythology. Throughout this collection, you manage to infuse literary references while creating poems that don't completely rely on readers being educated in those references. So how do you think about creating poetry that can appeal on multiple levels? You talked in the, you know, the last question, drove it in a poem that was intentionally very accessible. And you also have poems that have multiple layers, but are still, um, they, they offer something, even if you don't fully appreciate the references. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I believe that a poet should never condescend to his or her readers. Uh, people are intelligent. They have life experience. They have an alertness uh, to their own existence. And that what a poem does is uh, speak to the best part of you. And it should it's a spell. And that spell should awaken all the best things in a, or all the smartest things in a person. So... You know, there are some academic poets, and this is not universal, but they really believe that the poem has to be this kind of uh, dense verbal medium that you, you know, you you need to have been trained to decode. And I just never, I've never accepted that. I mean, Shakespeare was writing a po uh, poetry in his plays that the, the apprentices, the nobles, the middle class, uh, you know, could all appreciate, you know, that, that a soldier and a scholar could sit in the same audience and get something. And he did not exclude people. Uh, and what, and nor did Shakespeare constantly remind you how brilliant he was, you know, he, he made you part of everything. And so, and I, I think that's true uh, that, you know, what a, what a poet is trying to do is to engage the reader's attention and imagination and emotions and that when you do that, they don't need to understand everything. Uh, I mean, I did not understand a lot of the poems that I loved for years. And people know this. I mean, they love Bob Dylan, but they, you know, they, they don't know what some of the poems mean. But <laughs> there's an enchantment. And what they're really saying is that they love what happens to them when they hear these songs and they hear the words. And you know, they can have 10 different interpretations of who Mr. Tambourine Man is. Uh, but all of them work in terms of their own experience. So I try to write a poem that does two things simultaneously. And I honestly believe that this has been the secret code of poets from the beginning. You're trying to write a poem that engages your audience, but also another poet can listen to and, and hear differently and recognize how deep, how well-made it is. Uh, and I think it's a mistake when you make the second audience your primary audience and you lose the you lose them both. And so, you know, Robert Frost is a is a perfect example. Uh, when you reread his poems, they often mean something different than you thought the first time they read them. And the, and the comment that I get all the time, and I, I take this as a compliment. Some people may say, Dana, it's not a compliment, but people will go, you know, I, I sort of liked your poetry, uh, but when I didn't realize how good it was until I reread it. And I take that as a, as a compliment because I want my poems to be accessible, but to be uh, inexhaustible mm -hmm. if you reread them. Uh, and so anyway, uh, and so you have something on the surface that's, that is, you know, the sound, the images, the story, the emotions that arrest your attention. And then you have all the hidden correspondences and harmonies. Beautiful. Well, after uh, my first read of Meet Me at the Lighthouse, I sought out your collaboration with jazz pianist Helen Sung. The book includes three poems that are lyrics in Sung's pieces, as well as poems you recite on her album, such as the title poem. How was your approach to form influenced by creating lyrics for songs? 
Well, I, I collaborate with a lot of musicians. And so I've written four operas. Actually, a couple of days ago, I made an agreement to write another opera libretto for Kansas City Lyric Opera. And I've written with a lot of composers. And I learned things uh, that you need to know. I didn't know them when I began, but I, you know, I know them now. And there's probably many things I haven't learned yet that I need to know and I'm ignorant of. But the three things that I, I learned that were essential if you're writing for music is, first of all, uh, you have to keep the surface of the text clear. You know, so, you, you know, if you have a poem, and let, let's make a, you know, that uh, with a density of 100%, which means that you've made the words as dense and meaningful and rich as you possibly can, that's not going to work for a song. Mm -hmm. You need to back off. You need to, and there are traditional ways that, uh, lyricists have worked. One of them is to have parallel syntax. So every stanza has kind of, you know, similar sent, you know, sentence structures and things like that, that, uh, that, you know, and, and so you, you create a finished poem, but that is not so tightly written that the composer doesn't have room to get in there. Mm -hmm. The composer is going to get in there and they're going to just change it into something richer and different from, from what, you did. The second thing uh, is that the there's got to be somebody who performs it. So if I I'm writing words that a composer is going to take and put to the music, and then a stranger is going to come along and be asked to sing them, and so you've got to write words which tell that person. Uh, who they are, what they want, where they're going. You know, they've got to become your song. They've got to become the person who could do your song. And you listen to great, great pop songs. A lot of them begin by telling you where I am, sitting on the dock of the bay, watching, you know, you know, the, the tides go by. You know, it places the, the singer in a specific place. They'll tell you about their relationship and things like that. So, uh, so that's, not, that's really weird. I mean, because you don't write a poem uh, expecting that it's going to go to one stranger, then be passed on to a third stranger, <laughs> on whom the the effect of the of the uh, the poem, you know, you know, depends. And, and then, you know, the third thing of word is just to be lyric, to to express the emotions, the personality of people in in relatively direct ways, uh, and and also to, to to use rhyme, to use meter. You know, so that uh, the the, the song-like qualities become apparent. There's got there's a a reason that songs rhyme, because when you hear a rhyme, uh, you stop and think of what the rhyme refers to. So you hear a rhyme word three times. You hear it when it's spoken. You hear it when it rhymes, and then you hear it retrospectively. Mm -hmm. You know, from the rhyme, so you know you get you get three bang, you know three bangs for your buck, you know you know on on rhyme, and so I you know I don't uh, necessarily rhyme uh, my literary poems. Some of them I do, but when I write lyrics, I almost always rhyme, either well, regularly or irregularly. Well, you uh, you've got the perfect lead into my next question. So my my father is uh, my, both my parents are musicians, retired, which means they're still musicians, but they're getting paid less. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I joke. But my father was the uh, worked for the Chicago Lyric Opera for many, many years as a chorus master, head of music. And as a result, I grew up surrounded by opera, even got to be a, a, on La Boheme as, a, yeah. as an extra on stage. And so, as you mentioned, you've, you've created libretti for several operas, including uh, you've included in this collection uh, one of the pieces from that opera, the, the uh, treasure song from Free Fe Three Feathers, which I'm looking forward to seeing by solo opera this fall. So... You've talked about the, the the differences for writing song lyrics, um, writing for opera, which my parents would argue, and I would agree, is the most one of the most complex art forms of all. How do you? How is that even a step above writing lyrics for an individual song when it's an uh, when it's a full libretto? Well, a good opera has good lyrics in it. So if you think of of a you know, there's moments in Puccini where there's an excerptable song, you know, we have all heard this on concerts. So there's, there's a lot of similarity, but opera is complicated. And I think it's because 
you're trying to tell a story. Now, it depends if it's if it's comic or tragic, but for a tragic opera, a serious opera, you're trying to tell a story of life and death importance. Uh, but you you have to cut it down into a couple of incidents. I mean, La Boheme is this takes in the the life experience of of four or or arguably you know six or seven characters, but the four the four lovers, and you've got four scenes. <laughs> one in the you know you know uh, one in the garret, you know one you know in the cafe, uh, you know the uh, one outside a tavern in the snow, and then in a different garret. You know, I guess it's the, I don't know if it's the same garret or a different. Garret. I think it's this. You know, the, I think it's the. You know, and how can you do that? So you have to compress the plot. I mean, movies take a novel and compress it maybe into twenty scenes. You're usually compressing it into five, four, five, or six scenes, and so everything has to happen there, and you have no uh, uh, ability to kind of to fudge it. Uh, and I you see bad operas where they don't they don't do the, the you know second thing is you can't talk too much in an opera. I mean, there's some, there are operas that are very wordy, but it's very rare. I mean, you've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got maybe 12 lines to set up a, a major scene, mm-hmm. you know, versus 40 pages in a novel. And so you know, that, all that compression. But what I think, the way I think of writing opera now, uh, I think Verdi understood this. I mean, I got, you know, actually I'm writing a long essay right now in the libretto, is that, you do the overall plot in as few scenes as possible, and you look at each scene as a series of emotional arcs. Mm. And so you you start things, and then you you raise the emotions right away. Then they calm down. Then you create a you know higher thing, and then they calm down. And then you end the scene with the highest emotions. You know, so like in La Boheme, first they can't pay their first they're cold and they're freezing, then they can't pay their rent, uh, and but then. You know, they have these little little scenes, you know, little, you know, emotional, you know, arcs in there. And then suddenly Mimi comes in and she and Rudolfo fall in love. So the last arc is this tremendous arc of these two people who will be in love until the, the soprano dies. And, you know, the last words of the, of the act are amore, amore. So it goes from not paying your rent and freezing to transfiguring love. And that's That's what opera is. Yeah. And so... Uh, so, you know, so what I do is I, I sketch out the plot, what the scenes are going to be. Then I sit with the composer and I say, well, I think we're going to have this singer sing this piece here, you know, this thing here, this thing here. We're going to have a little climax here. We're going to do it. And that's why composers love that because that's how they work. And so we can actually take a portion of it out of sequence and say, you know, you can work on this, start working on the themes of this, then you can sort of wrap the themes around. So I find it... Uh, I feel, and I know this, the composers will hate me for saying this. I think most composers don't necessarily have very good literary judgment. Hmm. Uh, and so they, they they know what they want to do, but they don't know how to do it. And you can see this when they try to write their own libretti, how bad they are. Uh, and so I, I feel that uh, I have to be very domineering at the beginning and very uh, easygoing at the end. So... These are the characters you want. You don't want that. You want this. You want believable people. And the second thing is an opera should have lyrics at least as good as a bad musical. You know, and, and I see some of these contemporary operas. I'm sad because you're dying. That makes me sad. You know, it's too bad you're dying. You know, it's like who would even, you know, you know, in the, you know, the worst rock group wouldn't have lyrics this bad, but they think somehow that it excuses an opera. And I've seen librettists be on these panels saying, well, you know, opera, the words don't matter. It's all in the music. That's stupid. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you look at the words in Puccini, they're brilliant. They're just brilliant. Now, most people don't know this because they don't speak Italian. They don't speak German. They don't speak Russian. They don't speak French. But the average quality of these lyrics are excellent. Uh, and if you only know them for a, a bad rhymed translation that's 150 years old, you don't really know what's going on in these operas. And so I think good lyrics invite good music. Now I've got to make sure the, the lyrics are transparent enough where the composer can bring in, that the lyrics are clear enough that the audience can understand it because you face a problem in all music, but it's terrible in opera. You don't hear every word the singer sings. Mm-hmm. Now, Gilbert and Sullivan, they would train these people with this super diction that would do it most, but especially with high voices, with the soprano's voice, 
uh, you know, a tenor's upper range, uh, they're going to, you know, you're going to lose the consonants. Uh, so you have to, this is a, another really weird thing about writing opera. You've got to write a text that if they only catch eight out of 10 words, they can still understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know with the lyric, the the introduction of supertitles, and in many opera companies, they do this now, have have brought the words back into yeah. people's awareness. And and um, and despite the slight distraction value, I I know from talking to my father, it made a big difference, and it engaged the audiences even yeah, more. Yeah, they do it. Uh, singers and directors hate it because people are looking up from the stage, but I think it allows people to know exactly what's going on. Uh, when I am in a production with supertitles, I take an entire dress for private dress rehearsal with me and the thing to make sure that the lines are timed, mm. right. That they don't split the lines up, that they present them as poetry. And people complain about this, but then they see how uh, much more people laugh at the opera or how much more people are engaged. Cause if, you know, when you have this stupid notion that you can have the, 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 uh, the super title slightly out of sync with the action or that you, you don't break the lines up the way that they're being heard. And if you take that extra effort, honest to God, the opera is 50% more effective. Totally. Well, now, if you have really bad lyrics, maybe you don't, you know, <laughs> maybe, you maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to pivot to the shortest poem and meet me at the lighthouse. Epitaph simply states, here lies DG, a poet who can say he didn't even have an MFA which got a terrific laugh at Arian Press. Um, in your 1991 essay, Can Poetry Matter in the Atlantic, you argued in part that poetry had become too insular, poets writing for other poets, you've mentioned that. Publishing less is about reaching the general public and more about reaching other poets. How has your view changed in the last three decades since you wrote that article? And I think this builds on what we were talking about before, the impact of the internet, social media, the ability to self-publish books. I mean, if you were to write that essay now, how, how would you approach it? What would stay the same? What would change? I'm sad to say that nearly everything I said in Can Poetry Matter remains true. And, and in fact, the academic environment for poetry has become worse. Hmm. Uh, for all kinds of reasons, everybody, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why English departments are just decreasing and imploding, you know, that it's, uh, they've made themselves too remote from the actual culture of, of the moment of people. They think they're being, you know, by being politically correct or whatever, that they're embracing the moment, but they're not. They're, they've lost touch with, with what the lives of most people and what most people look, and they're just, they think it's all about language. It's all about, you know, about terms and, and, and naming, which I think is a, uh, well, anyway, it's a, you know, it's a whole philosophical argument you could make about that. But what I was hoping for in Can Poetry Matter was a revival of poetry. And you can see what I'm listening outside the classroom, you know, and I, uh, and I use the notion of a phoenix, you know, uh, that fire spangled phoenix, uh, that it's you know, that out of the the kind of the ashes of the you know of of you know of one decline that you'd have this. Then I wrote an essay called Disappearing Ink, uh, which most people haven't read. It's one of the two or three best things I've ever written, and it uh, it predicted and and began to notice the very first points of an emergence of a popular poetry culture: mm -hmm. hip hop, cowboy poetry, poetry slams, new formalism, all of these things. And so the main thing that's happened is that as the academic culture has declined, a new popular poetry culture has emerged. That's, you're a member of that popular culture. You're a civic poet laureate. You're, you're presenting poems at, you know, at occasions that uh, are completely unacademic occasions mm -hmm. with audiences that are not academic audiences. Now, once again, they, they may have some people that are teachers or whatever in them, but they're mixed popular audiences. And so we've seen this immense revival of poetry among the very people we were told by the academics would never come back to poetry again. Why? Because they hunger for memorable power or language to describe their own experiences. Well said. So your book includes a series of psalms for Los Angeles, a city with a healthy rivalry with the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I am right now. 
the poems both capture what makes a city of angels unique and critiques its challenges. In Psalm of the Heights, you write, move away if you wish to the White Sierras or huddle in the smoky canyons of Manhattan. You'll miss the juvenescent rapture of LA where ecstasy cohabits with despair. Lascivious and fitful as a pair of lovers. Let someone else play grown up. Share how you approach writing these series of poems, especially coming from your love of Los Angeles, the incorporation of Easter eggs for locals to recognize and enjoy, and how poetry can capture the essence of something, and in this case, a city. Well, you know, I was born and raised in L.A. My wife was born and raised in L.A. She was from the nice neighborhood. I was from the, you know, the crappy neighborhood. Uh, but, you know, my neighborhood had... You know, a main in Hawthorne, California, where I'm talking about, town the Beach Boys are from. It's where Marilyn Monroe went to primary school with my mother. Actually, my mother was in the same class with her one year. Uh, where you know, it's it's just a working class American town at a main street that was torn down to build a mall whose primary purpose was political graft. The mall went bankrupt almost immediately, and actually, slightly. After I published this poem, it was the abandoned mall was voted by one architectural committee, the ugliest thing in America, you know. And so it's about going back to my hometown, my hometown. I, whenever I'm in Los Angeles, I'll just drive back to my old neighborhood. There's nothing left much. My The apartment I grew up in is still there, still looking pretty shabby. The church I at parochial school I went to is there. I have lunch at, a, at one of the places I had a lunch when I, at a childhood, but everything has been destroyed. And so I was so deeply upset that I wrote this poem. Mm -hmm. And that generated the other ones. This is what I don't think I've ever read in public before because it's such an, it's, it's about the worst parts of Los Angeles, about the thing that, uh, well, you'll, it'll speak for itself. Psalm and lament for Los Angeles. And I'm, and I'm echoing uh, one of the Psalms, which is on the, by the rivers of Bab Babylon. I sat down and wept, wept as I remembered Jerusalem uh, or Israel. I forget, you know, which, so it goes, Psalm and lament for Los Angeles. On the streets of Hawthorne, I sat down and wept. Yes, wept as I remembered it. I came to the asphalt country of my childhood to revisit the precincts of memory. I walked to the old boulevard where the shops had been condemned and demolished. I passed the bankrupt mall, defaced and boarded, and all was vacancy and squalor. Where was the drugstore where my parents met? in the neighborhood park with its Indian palms? Where was the plaza theater with its neon beacon taller than a church spire? I wandered the silent ruins of my city. What was there to sing in a strange and empty land? If I forget you, Los Angeles, let my eyes burn in the smoggy crimson of your sunsets. If I prefer not the queen of the angels to other cities, then close my ears to the beat of your tides. Let me stand on the piers of Malibu, blind to the dances of the surfers and the dolphins. But, oh, Los Angeles, you dash your children against the stones. You devour your natives and your immigrants. You destroy your father's house. You sell your daughters to strangers. You sprawl in the carnage and count the spoils. You stretch naked in the sunlight, beautiful and obscene, so enormous, hungry, and impossible to pardon. So wonderful hearing you you read uh, your poetry. And I think this is a perfect example of where I don't know of any other form that could capture so much so in such a distinct form, like an essay about the rise and fall and rise of, of, a, of, a, of a neighborhood or loss. It just, it doesn't yeah. have the same emotional impact. And, uh, it, and you can convey in a couple of minutes something that would take a person 20, 30 minutes to read in an essay and, and more powerfully. And, uh, yeah, and, 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 and you do that in a number of ways. You do it through the music of language. I think there's a plane flying overhead. Sorry about the noise. Uh, you do it through allusion. You know, if I forget the old Jerusalem, 
you know, so if I forget the old asset, you know, there's let my right hand forget its cunning, you know, but you do this and the echoes bring people back to prophetic language in this case. But having written that, I was able finally to write a poem I'd wanted to write for 40 years a poem about the weird beauty of Los Angeles. And that's this poem called Psalm of the Heights. There's a, a video of it, which, you know, th that I have on YouTube right now that gets a thousand views a day. You know, I mean, just people, Angelinos, this is the poem they want. When I read this in, in, in Southern California, people just come up and ask for a copy. And I get people writing me emails about their childhood, their, all their experiences in Los Angeles, because that's what poetry does. Poetry takes the audience, and I, in talking about my experience, honor your experience. Mm -hmm. That's why if the poem says, you know, hey, you know, James, I'm smarter than you, I'm more sensitive than you, I'm cleverer than you, I mean, you're saying, screw off, Dana. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I got a very complicated life, very complicated inner life that you don't even know about. And so I think... You know, what you try to do with a poem is to invite your the reader to come in and bring their whole life into your poem and have the poem where it honors that. It, it fits that. And so that's what this does. And so I wrote that poem. And then I thought I was done. I thought it was just those two poems. And then suddenly I wrote this poem and it's like it surprised me. Once again, it was like the cowboy ballad. I was very uncomfortable writing about it. It's a poem about the Virgin Mary. Uh, you know, who is the patron saint of Los Angeles mm -hmm. about what does it mean to have a city that's the city of Our Lady, Queen of the Angels? Uh, and, you know, go to East L.A., there's, you know, the Lady of Guadalupe is on the sides of walls. People have it tattooed on their body. They have it decaled on their car. And there's this, this primary memory that she is the patroness. Uh, and, and what does it mean when you try to take the city and you, and you it, was, it was created by poor people for poor people and you and you take them out of the quotient. And so that's so this you know this kind of visionary poem. So I have a poem of prophecy, you know, and prophecy doesn't mean about the future. It means about taking the, the present moment to task for how it has failed. Then I have a poem of praise, and then I have a poem a poem of vision. Yeah, you know, so and so I was surprised by the whole thing. Uh, but you know, that's that's what you know, that's what the muse does. Yeah, no, I, it's a beautiful sequence of, of, of poetry, and it's a perfect form. So just one more question before I hand the mic over to you to read a couple of selections from Meet Me at the Lighthouse, and you've already shared one. In your book, 99 Poems, I was drawn in particular to the stories, a series of long narratives, homecoming and style were striking and unsettling. With so many poets exclusively and sometimes narcissistically crafting poems solely from their personal experiences, what advice do you have for poets to craft poetry from things that may be purely or largely imagined? First of all, uh, telling stories is part of what poetry does. Poetry told stories before novels did, before movies existed, before plays existed. Poetry was invented to tell stories that are worth remembering. So anybody who says that, you know, the, you know, the, the narrative poetry is against the notion of poetry. He doesn't knows nothing about poetry. It's the stupidest thing to say. Sometimes you need a graduate degree to say something truly stupid. <laughs> uh, and, and this is an example of it. Secondly, and this is true, if you're going to tell a story in a poem, you got to tell it differently from you do the way you do it in prose. You, it needs to be shorter, more cons, uh, more evocative. Uh, you need to treat it almost like an opera that you have these things and you have these emotional peaks and you do the exposition you bring into it. So, so a narrative poem is, is, a, is a sort of up and down of, of, of things, keeping the reader moving along. Uh, and you've got to have some exposition, but the exposition should be haiku-like, you know, in, in its brevity, and, and you will let the emotions run. Uh, and the language, I mean, a lot of times when poets write short story, you know, write narrative poems, they make the language prosaic. No, you don't. I mean, did, did Shakespeare make his language prosaic? He has prosaic lines, he has prosaic moments, but those are to set up these flights of, of the imagination. So, you know, so I think it's that balancing, uh, that balancing act that, you know, that the, the homecoming uh, poem is essentially a, almost a full novel mm -hmm. told in about 15 pages. 
And I think you keep the reader, you know, turning those pages. Uh, you know, the BBC, we recorded and broadcasted on their fiction show, uh, you know, because it works as a story, but it has the kind of velocity and an intensity that is very much, un it's different from, a, a, from prose fiction, which I love. And I wish I had time to write, but you can only do a few things well in life. Well, I've also found that Michael Andache, who's a novelist and poet that I really love, his, his novels, uh, you can tell that he has um, incredible skills as a poet because he writes his novels in a very much more compact, dense way where I think he's worrying about each word more than other. And I love Stephen King too, but I don't think he's worrying as much about every word or line yeah. to the same degree. Well, let me just ask a, a simple question. I come into the room and, I, and you can hear one of two stories and uh, if I say, you won't believe what happened to me at the office today. Uh, or you won't believe what happened to the guy down the street. What story is going to be more interesting? Everybody knows it's going to be the second story because yeah. you heard it. And so when poets only write about themselves, you know, they, uh, their lives may be rich and wonderful, but it's probably not as interesting as the things that can happen to other people or to imaginary people. And you can take the most interesting things that happened to you put them in that story and add other things. And so all of my narrative poems have things that are deeply personal, things that are autobiographical, but they're framed into a story that has greater significance. Cool. Well, now I'm going to hand the mic over to you to read a couple more selections from Meet Me at the Lighthouse. Uh, this is the title poem of the book. Um, it, one of the poems you, that you suggested I read. It's called Meet Me at the Lighthouse. Now, the lighthouse is an actual jazz club in Hermosa Beach, California. Uh, it's very famous for West Coast jazz. It's kind of a dump. Uh, but, you know, like most great jazz clubs, it's a dump in which miracles happen. Uh, there's one classical allusion here, which is Tartarus, which is the lowest region of the underworld. I talk about the, like, the all-stars. The all-stars, you know, were the house band at the, the, you know, at the lighthouse. And then I have a bunch of names, first names, you know, Jerry, Cannonball, Hampton, Stan, Chet, Art. Those are the, the first names of very famous jazz musicians, Chet Baker, Art Pepper. They're just, and jazz people refer usually to the, their, to the, uh, the jazz heroes by their first name. It's like Renaissance painting, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael. It's a, for, a form, I think, of affection. And everybody in the poem except for me, is dead. And it's written to my, my dead cousin, who is my best friend growing up, uh, who died at an early age. Meet me at the lighthouse. Meet me at the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach, that shabby nightclub on its foggy pier. Let's aim for the summer of 71, when all our friends were young and immortal. I'll pick up the cover charge, find us a table, and order a round of their watery drinks. Let's savor the smoke of that sinister century, perfume of tobacco and the tangy salt air. The crowd will be quiet, only ghosts at the bar, so you, old friend, won't feel out of place. You need a night out from that dim subdivision. Tell Dr. Death, You'll be home before dawn. The club has booked the best talent in Tartarus. Jerry, Cannonball, Hampton, and Stan. With Chet and Art, those gorgeous greenhorns. The swinging masters of our West Coast soul. Let the all-stars shine from that Jerry-built stage. Let the high notes shimmer above the cold waves. Time and the tide are counting the beats. Death, the collector, is keeping the tab. Uh, this is, I'm going to read uh, two more. Uh, this one you've asked me to read called Words, Words, Words. It's a hard poem to read because it's a very intricate stanza. And it's also a poem about writing. And it really asks the question about, uh, you know, what makes a poem a poem? Uh, you know, is it the emotions? Is it the way you use words? Uh, is it your personal trauma that you're projecting? Uh, you know, and so I, each stanza 
you know, offers one of those things, you know, uh, and uh, the title words, words, words is a quote from Shakespeare in Hamlet, you know, uh, Polonius, the advisor sees Hamlet with a book and he asks, my Lord, what are you reading? And Hamlet, you know, rather, you know, uh, to be, to be honorary, really, he goes, words, 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 <laughs> you know, uh, words, words, words. It isn't just the words, though we have made a science of them. Eloquence excels in polishing the sentiments we need no longer say. Words are the cards, not why the game is played. It isn't just the rhyme, though we surmise the accidental insights of conjunction, the superstitious chanting we despise, but can't forget, shamed by our childish pleasure in surprise. It isn't just the pain we hope to end. Old wounds still seep their blood between the lines. The truest words subvert what we intend. They bring no ease. The cost is always more than what we can spend. It is the luck to fail at what we started, of letting language use us as a vessel swept on a course we never could have charted to hope that once the angel came, possessed us, and departed. So, you know, it's a very dense poem, very complicated poem, you know, uh, in that I'm, you know, playing with ideas, I'm playing with rhythms and things like that. But I, but, you know, I think that once again, uh, T.S. Eliot said something that uh, I think one should believe, which is that you appreciate a poem, you experience a poem before you understand it. You love a poem before you understand it. And I think that you could, one can hear the argument. And then there's, there's, you know, there's, uh, there's lines which are clear. The cost is always more than we can spend, you know, about how much effort it takes to, you know, to, you know, to the pain that goes into writing a poem, you know, is extraordinary. <laughs> you get a little poem out of a month, six months of, of agony, uh, and so there's that, but that's a very complicated poem. This is a poem about my mother. My mother forbade me from writing any poems about her. Even on her deathbed, she made me promise not to write an elegy. But, and so this is a poem written a few years after her death. And when your parents die, you inherit all their junk. And you, know, you have to figure out what to do with it. You hate to throw anything away, but you, you, know, you can't accommodate it all. So you save some things. And, in this case, I've saved some Christmas ornaments, and my mother could only afford the cheapest of anything. There's one word here that's I, I realize is probably a footnote word to younger things: dime store. You know, uh, it used to be the Newberry, you know, Woolworth five and ten, and, and now you know, now even the dollar store, you know, you know, you know, is kind of a thing. But it's the it's the place where you could buy the cheapest things, and I have a, an allusion in the title. When the, the Magi visited, uh, you know, the Mary and the baby Jesus, they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this poem is called Tinsel, Frankincense, and Fir, F-I-R, as, as in the tree. Hanging old ornaments on a fresh-cut tree, I take each red glass bulb and tinfoil seraph and blow away the dust. Anyone else would throw them out. They are so scratched and shabby. My mother had so little joy to share. She kept it in a box to hide away. But on the darkest winter nights, voila, she opened it resplendently to shine. How carefully she hung each thread of tinsel or touched each dime store bauble with delight. Blessed by the frankincense of fragrant fur, nothing was too little to be loved. Why did the dead insist on bringing gifts we can't reciprocate? We wrap her hopes around the tree, crowned with a fragile star. No holiday is holy 
without ghosts. So those are three three very different poems, although I guess uh, two of them have ghosts in them of sorts. Well, just one final question, and I and you're one example of a poem, which is where I think YouTube and, and being able to publish on the internet is so helpful, is that when people are trying to learn how to recite poetry, I point them to you and to some other poets that are very good at performing their poetry, and... Uh, when I when I, I spent decades writing and only uh, last couple of years um, started doing so publicly and I hired a poetry coach to teach me how to recite poetry. It is a skill that I'm still learning and uh, I've, embar- I've, I've hidden the videos from a couple of years ago that I did so embarrassed by them now. But what uh, what what have you learned in terms of the skill of turning poetry on the page, yours or by other poets, and making it effective as a recited poem, which I view are two, there are two versions of it. And actually, I was, when I interviewed Olivia Gatwood last year, who was a wonderful performance poet, um, I recommended people read the book and then get the audio book read by her because you'll get two complementary experiences. So what have you learned over the years? Well, there's two things I would advise poets. First, when you write a poem, Keep saying it aloud, and not just the phrase or not just the line, but but read the whole thing aloud to yourself and see if there aren't uh, things that you could make work better as sound. I mean, there's an experience you have with composers where you'll have written a really great line, and it'll say, you know, you are the McKisselbooks, and the McKisselbooks is just exactly the right word. Uh, and the same composer will say, well, you know, I, I'm putting that last line on a high A, and you can't put Z, K, and CH, you know, in, in that, you, I didn't open vowel. And so if, if a composer, that's so what I say about at the beginning of the process, I'm very domineering, but if this, the composer says, look, the singer can't sing that syllable, then we'll write, I'll rewrite the line so it ends in an open vowel, you know, and those, sometimes the composer will say, I, I'd love an O, a long O, or a long E, something, you know, <laughs> but, but that's because the human instrument does that. So write poems work when you speak them and you hear them. I mean, I know a really great poem because when I, not of my own, but like I was reading Yeats last night and, and you put them in your mouth and your mouth just feels great. You know, you can, you can feel it in your larynx. Uh, so, so when you write the poems, think about how they speak and how they listen. The other thing is when you get the, the poem, uh, don't stare at the page and read it like prose. I, I was a did a, uh, a lot of work as a BBC cultural commentator and worked on a show for the BBC for a while called Kaleidoscope that was a daily arts show. And the BBC, when they came in there, they, they he told the the, uh, the two pieces of advice. Like I got three pieces of advice. I'll tell you the last one afterwards. Don't eat chocolate because it drives your vocal cords. Mm-hmm. Don't eat chocolate, no cocoa, no chocolate bars for energy. Okay, that's easy. The other thing, punch your verbs. Punch your verbs. So, uh, you know, so like, you know, uh, how carefully she hung each thread of tinsel or touched each dime store bobble with delight. How carefully she hung each thread of tinsel or touched each dime store bobble with delight, blessed by the fra- frankincense of fragrant be- Appear. Nothing was too little to be loved. Mm-hmm. Punch the verbs. If you do that, your reading will be 50% better instantly because the verbs are the words that govern the syntax and they're also the words that give you the most dynamic meaning. Now, the third piece of advice that I got about being a BBC producer is that we used to come into the studio directly after the very famous Alastair Cook. People will remember him from narrating Masterpiece Theater, but Alistair Cook had a 65-year career with the BBC, including during World War II when he did Letters from America. And one of the greatest people in the history of the BBC, he was right before us. So he was coming out, this old man, and we said, you know, Mr. Cook, we want to introduce ourselves. We're such fans of yours. He wrote, oh, right with you. He said, do you have any advice for a young uh, broadcaster? He said, oh, yes. And we, we we're waiting. He goes, always urinate before a broadcast. Good advice. Good <laughs> yes. advice. So but my third piece of advice to poets giving public readings is go to the bathroom before 
the public reading so that you can bring your full concentration to communicating with the audience. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dana, I want to thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. It's been a thrill and a joy to have you here. It's been a lot of fun. So, you know, uh, look forward to seeing you again. And I hope to see you uh, at the performance of three, The Three Feathers. I will absolutely. For people in the San Francisco Bay Area, the wonderful Lesher Center for the Performing Arts will have the Three Feathers um, live solo opera in uh, September. Yeah, early September. It's a great opera. So, and it's a it's a kids opera that adults will enjoy. Wonderful. Well, thanks again. Pleasure talking to you. All right. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.